Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Maria Lewis. Maria is an author, a journalist, and a screenwriter. She's appeared on Final Draft in the past, discussing her werewolf novels, Who's Afraid and Who's Afraid Too. Since we last spoke, Maria has won an Aurelius Award and expanded Tommy Grayson's world of Who's Afraid into an entire connected universe. And today, Maria's joining me to discuss her new novel, The Wailing Woman. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to that land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture as featured on 2SER. Now, the Great Conversations podcast is a chance to hear more of these discussions. Sadie Burke is from an ancient family of banshees. Banshees were exiled from Ireland to Australia in the 19th century and are considered to be amongst the least of all supernatural beings. At 19 years old, Sadie works in the family business as a forensic cleaner and tries to cope with the visions of those about to die. Then one day, a face from her past returns to Sydney, heralding changes that will shatter Sadie's supernatural world. Join me as we discover Maria Lewis's The Wailing Woman. Welcome, Maria. I'm very excited to talk about this novel and the the universe you've created. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, before we get into The Wailing Woman specifically, I I hoped we could just explore the the idea of the connected universe a little bit. because (laughs) Yeah, go for it. This is one of my favourite things in fantasy because it allows us as readers to truly immerse ourselves. It's it's something akin to kind of like open world gaming where as you read, you have the sense that you could veer off in any direction and you'll still still find that there's a consistent reality like... It really helps you believe that, you know, behind that door, there might actually be a bathroom, not just an empty set. <laughs> did, did you? Because <laughs> that's what open world gaming is all about, finding the bathroom. Did you have the extended world in mind, though, back when you first were conceiving and writing Tommy Grayson? Yeah, I did. And it's so interesting you say that because I think the, the idea of extended world, shared universe, multiverse, whatever you want to call it, is a concept that's very familiar and comfortable for people who are gamers and especially the people who are massive comic book readers. I mean, that was sort of my first exposure to it, and I'm a big believer in that whole Stan Lee saying that, you know, every comic book is somebody's first comic book. And although you have a shared X-Men universe or a shared Justice League or whatever, each character has their own sort of separate stories that all interweave and interconnect but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily ostracize new readers and new viewers. And so when I was putting Who's Afraid together, I, had, uh, I sold Who's Afraid as a two-book deal for Who's Afraid and another untitled book. And there were a few options as to what that book could be. It could have been Who's Afraid 2, which is what it ended up being. But the other book that was a possibility that was there and ready to go was The Witch Who Caught a Death, which ended up being my fourth book. And that followed... A character that, and several characters actually, that pop up in Who's Afraid and some of the other novels and go off on their own adventures. So the idea was always there. The concept and premise was always there. But I guess if Who's Afraid had been a massive flop, um, (laughs) we wouldn't have gotten very far. But the tricky thing is with a debut novel, with with any book really, but particularly the first book in a fantasy series, everything is new. 
the character names are new, the setting is new, the world is new, the conventions of the world is new, the, the powers, the villains, everything about it is new. And so you're trying to work really hard not to overwhelm the reader, not to info dump so much and to provide, I guess, a gateway into that world. And Tommy Grayson was that entry point. Who's Afraid is written in first person because I really wanted readers to connect with her, for her to be the vessel, like the through line, essentially, into the supernatural universe. And as the other books have gone on and the characters have become more different or different types of women and different types of monsters, the style of writing has changed depending on the particular type of story that I'm trying to tell. And, you know, I'm at the fifth book now with The Wailing Woman, so there's a certain point where you know that there are people who are there because they read the first book and they carried along on the journey and have read each of her novels. The other part is also wanting to invite new readers into that world in a way that it's inclusive and that they feel like they can jump in at book five and they haven't missed anything. But at the same time, as you've been reading from book one, there's little treats or little extra nods that you're going to be rewarded with. Mm. And a world requires world building. And, and as a supernatural universe world, you introduce us to, I guess, a lot of old favorites of um, mm-hmm. of the genre you know your your heroic take on werewolves being is is really re- like intriguing and it occurs through each, each of the books as well as i guess you kind of avoid maybe overused tropes i notice that vampires don't seem to be a fave <laughs> but- yeah look vampires i just wanted to get it out of the way because i knew that having a werewolf uh, main character. I don't want to call Tommy a protagonist because I think particularly in the first book she's quite antagonistic. She has antagonistic qualities and every villain is a hero of their own story. And Tommy is... I, I really made it difficult for myself I think. Tommy's a pretty unlikable character. She's very complicated and complex and prickly and I wanted her to start in a specific place and go on a journey and change and evolve as not only like a character and as a werewolf but as a woman. And to to do that, in order to do that, I had to start somewhere very specific, um, which can, you know is like a difficult jump. But at the same time, because she's a werewolf, and because of when Who's Afraid came out, which was 2016, I knew the vampire shit was going to come up real early. And like, I love vampires, vampire stories, and vampire mythology is probably one of my favorite things. As somebody who's a massive fan of the supernatural and paranormal fiction and speculative fiction in general. But my thing is that I don't really have a take on vampires. And I feel like there have been so many fantastic takes and even more terrible ones. So I didn't want to have vampires be a big part of that world because then I knew immediately people would throw the books into the category of it being a werewolf vampire book, which was a very popular thing in paranormal fiction and urban fantasy at the time. So there are vampires that exist in this universe, but they're essentially like mangy cats, you know. They are kept in cages and they eat rats and they're dying out due to uh, disease and inbreeding, if you will. They are not sentient beings. Um, They're basically like the golems or the feral cats of the supernatural universe. So they exist, but they're not a big feature in any way, shape or form. And that gave me the freedom to play with different types of supernatural beings that A, I had always been interested in, but B, I felt hadn't been featured as often in popular culture. I mean, werewolves are pretty popular, but female werewolves and biracial female werewolves and dealing with uh, female aggression and the idea of the feminine grotesque and 
all that kind of identity stuff, that's something that was uh, a vessel kind of used for exclusively male storytelling. And so there are a lot of sort of things that I wanted to play with. I think I'm not necessarily somebody who wants to shit on cliches or stereotypes or tropes or anything like that. I think they can be a really valuable and useful and powerful tool, especially when you know them really well, because you can... You can lead the audience down a certain path, and when they're expecting you to turn left, you can turn right or vice versa. So I've enjoyed employing those um, in a way that hopefully feels a little bit unexpected, but at the same time, a little bit familiar as well. Meanwhile, because of the open world nature of of the Maria-verse, the Maria-Lewis-verse, I now know that there is a, an animal rights style activist out there wandering the streets of your universe doing like neuter and release of tiny baby vampires so that, you know, they, they don't, they don't go on the mange. Um, so, so we have arrived. Uh, yes, that's it. That's it. We have arrived at Sadie Burke. Now, Sadie, yes. Sadie is she from an, she's from an ancient family of banshees and the banshees have been exiled to Australia. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they're considered to be amongst the least of all supernatural beings. Now, I am reluctant to say too much about Sadie's journey, except that as we follow her, she has no voice, which is a decidedly horrific fate for anyone with a, even a passing knowledge of banshees. What did you want Sadie's character to illuminate then about power and voice? Oh, I think the idea of a teenage girl who quite literally doesn't have a voice is a terrifying one for anybody in the age group or who remembers what it's like to be a teenage girl or, you know, met them. That's a, that's a period of time where you're really discovering who you are or who you want to be aspirationally at the very least. So I wanted The Wailing Woman to be about a woman who finds her voice and learns how to use it, quite literally. And the idea of banshees is something that has always intrigued me. I mean, we were talking a little bit off air about comic book banshees and, you know, there's some in Marvel, but DC Comics in particular, Silver Banshee and the character of Jeanette from Secret Six are probably two of the really, like, prevalent ones in pop culture. There's one that kind of gets shoehorned into the latest seasons of Teen Wolf, and there's a few, but there's not very many, and that really intrigued me because it's, a mythology that is exclusively female. Um, it's historically always been women or feminine-type creatures, and it comes from a very specific area of the world, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And digging into that mythology through the Irish Folklore Commission and some of the traditional manuscripts is really interesting to me because people don't necessarily know all the traits or things that define what a banshee is. Werewolves, people know, okay, you turn to wolf at some point, usually there'll be a moon, you know, vampires, you might sparkle, but there's like blood, there's a coffin, there's crucifix, there's whatever. Banshees, people don't really have very many preconceived notions. So in order to have that being a supernatural creature that exists in the world, I needed to essentially make up and create uh, a power structure for what that would look like and how that would how that would intersect with the other creatures that we've already met in the other books, which includes, you know, mer-creatures, selkies, all that kind of thing, but witches, ghosts, mediums, werewolves, immortals, <laughs> you kind of name it, demons, goblins at this point. There's been a lot. So that was, that was probably one of the biggest challenges of the book. And Sadie in particular was someone that I was really excited to write because I think she's so different from a lot of the other women who have centered each of the books. I mean, that's kind of the aim is that 
I want each novel to focus on a different type of woman. Tommy is she's difficult, difficult women, difficult. You know, she's she's messy and she's mean and she's complicated and she's scary and she's very overt in the things that she is. Casper, the main character from The Witch Who Courted Death, and Opal, the character who kind of is the the co-lead with her, if you will. That's a a medium and a witch. And Casper is a woman who's in her 30s. Tommy was in her early 20s. That's a a decade apart. And they're very different stages that you find yourself in life. When you're in your 30s, a lot of people know exactly who they are and know who they want to be as a woman. And Sadie Burke, she's 19. She's still sort of uh, on that process. And she's very soft. She's very sweet. She's someone whose compassion and empathy and love of people is perceived as a weakness, but it's also a massive strength. And I wanted to to really focus on a heroine whose feminine traits were uh, were some of the things that made her the most powerful. It's really interesting the way you have, in the mythology of your universe, and I guess it's sort of a, a manufactured mythology amongst the hierarchies that... Um, the banshees are the weakest, but this is this is something that's almost enforced upon them. And the idea that you know there's there's so much pushback. There's got to be something going on here. And the the traits that they represent are this idea of seeing death. This um, very much very much almost a power source that derives from empathy, and that somehow this may be uh, an untapped power. I mean, I, again, I'm. I'm skirting around ideas that I want people to discover, but the the way that we we have these sort of gender coded female traits of empathy um, being seen as a, an untapped source of power. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's no secret the metaphor here is all the patriarchy. <laughs> it's about the matriarchy and the patriarchy, and mm. and uh, and the insidious nature of the patriarchy and how it can poison not just. Uh, not just women and the power and the freedoms of women, but men as well. It keeps men in boxes. It restricts and restrains men as much as it does women and um, or more, you know, non-binary folk as well. So that was something that I wanted to explore. I think some of the best supernatural stuff can be incredibly entertaining while also being about something important. At least that's always been the appeal for me. Um, regardless of whether something has been, you know, incredibly popular, like True Blood, for example, incredibly mm. popular, a groundbreaking TV show on HBO and also an internationally best-selling series of novels from Charlene Harris. But just because it's popular doesn't mean that it was insignificant or didn't have something to say. I think some of the most interesting and biting criticisms of race and racism in America and homophobia and sexism have been from that show, and it really... It really broke ground for everything that would come on HBO after it, specifically Game of Thrones, by showing that you can have sexually explicit and violent content and still engage with people, and that they wanted to be there and like learn those stories and learn those lessons, but in a way that was you know really adult, and that you could you could include a lot of different types of people in those narratives. And the Wailing Woman, it's again like five books. You have this five books in, you have this luxury now of having done a lot of the heavy lifting. I think first books are really hard because, again, like you're trying not to overexpose people or interdump on people and you're trying to explain one character while also alluding to the world. But by five books in, you really know the universe really well. You know the specific areas really well. Each book takes part in a different, a few different like settings. The Wailing Woman is Sydney, Australia specifically, but 
also Ireland and uh, Shoreditch and London. And so using those locations and using a real history in those locations as well to inform the hyperreal and to inform the made-up has been something that I really enjoyed and something that can thread really nicely into the bigger themes of, of some of the other books, whether it, it came from the deep, Who's Afraid 2 or The Witch Who Caught a Death or Who's Afraid. Mm. I also noticed themes of family. Um, they're really prominent mm. in The Wailing Woman, but I've, I've seen them in, in others of your work that I've read, and especially ideas around the family that we're born into and the family that we, I guess, create along the way. Why are these important to you in your stories? And, and do the supernatural elements highlight the need for these bonds to be created? Yeah, I just wanted to show the variation, essentially. I mean, the sort of grounding relationships in Sadie Burke's life are those with her family. The Wailing Woman, you know, she's a banshee. She's a 19-year-old banshee, but she has six sisters. She comes from a family of women who all work together as forensic cleaners because they can foresee and foretell death. So they use their superpowers to their advantage, if you will, um, in order to operate a business and to find... To, to essentially scramble out some semblance of a life in a, in a country and in a supernatural system that doesn't necessarily want to welcome them. And so that's who, they, who the Burke sisters are and their blood and their connection and their history is really important to them. In juxtaposition to that, Who's Afraid is all about a woman essentially choosing her family. She doesn't really have one in the traditional sense of the world. And a family that you choose can be just as important and just as rewarding and just as significant as one that you're born into. So I just wanted to show essentially that family structure doesn't have to be this traditional sort of, you know, white bread version of a mother or father, two kids or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of, whatever a traditional family or that phrase means to you. It can be anything and it can be just as important and just as significant as a family that can be comprised of, you know, two mums and 82 siblings or no parents, just a bunch of kids who love each other and connect with each other um, morality-wise and life-wise. And those kind of relationships have been something that have been really enduring for me in my life, regardless of whether the person is blood or not. I also noticed that, that idea of a loving family, it stood in really stark contrast to your other protagonist's experience, Texas. He's human, he's an Ascari, uh, which we might have to explain. <laughs> he's also deeply conflicted about his role in the supernatural world. And I, he was intriguing because I, I wondered about his uncertainty um, and whether it's sort of a, a, there to question and trigger for readers um, their own questions about where they sit in terms of power structures, the impacts of their choices and their actions. I mean, uh, I mean, even just for myself, you know, I can re- reflect a lot in Texas. You know, d- being being male, uh, being cisgendered. You know, he he sits in a power structure not just within the supernatural organization, but within society. Yeah, totally. And it's also that thing of like nature versus nurture and how that works and what that means and how that shakes down depending on the particular circumstances of a person and the family and the world and the life, et cetera, et cetera. But Texas, the way the woman is told from dual points of view, you have a chapter from Sadie Burke's point of view and you have a chapter from Texas Contos, who's the other sort of shared protagonist. And the way the supernatural organization works, for those who aren't familiar with the books, is essentially there's a supernatural government called the Trez, 
Uh, and underneath them, there are soldiers called the Praetorian Guard. There are people who are like the counselors of the world, people who guide supernatural beings, um, not in a physical sense, but more in an emotional and supportive line. And those are called the, um, so you have Praetorian Guard, you have custodians who are the counselors of the world, and then you have the Ascari, who are essentially the, the lackeys, so the foot soldiers, the people who collect ground truth, uh, the red shirts, if you were going to use a, a Star Trek analogy. But they're sort of the first point of call, and they're pretty expendable. They don't have a long lifespan because most of them are, are mortal in one form or the other, and they're dealing with uh, immortal and monstrous beings, so they can, they can be cannon fodder. And so for somebody growing up within that structure, like Texas does, his view of the world is very different to somebody who has that structure enforced on her, like Sadie. And that was something that was really interesting to me, and I really enjoyed from a writing perspective, but I hope would be informative to people from uh, an audience perspective, having each chapter be told by one character or the other, which isn't something that I'd done in the books previously. I mean... Most of the other books have been written in third person, but it's pretty much been specifically uh, through one character's lens, whereas this gave an opportunity to sort of show multiple perspectives at once. And that was something that really excited me, and I, I hope it pushed the boundaries a little bit um, in terms of the type of storytelling that I was trying to do with the novel and the types of stories that I could tell within that world. Yeah, I just and I just found him intriguing as a character. There's a particular scene that um <laughs> that sort of really really drew me out um where at the point in the book Texas is becoming very overwhelmed by a lot of different things that are going on, but he he decides he's going to go out and he's he he's craving um you know some human company and it's it's this really extraordinary scene where you can understand the pain that he is going through but then it's it's quite jarring to have him essentially just going like i'm sick of all this diversity why can't i just get a little bit of my dominant culture on um it it sort of almost felt like you know he he wanted to escape and it it was highlighted in the sense that you know for a lot of uh the people and um, supernatural beings that he he in, he was uh, encountering, they often don't have an escape. They have to hide in plain view, and they they don't have the same option that he was looking for himself. Yeah, they don't get to code switch in that mm. same way. And I mean, the Contos family are Greek Australians who are humans, essentially enforcing superhumans or uh, controlling and governing superhumans. So it's a different kind of world, but. Texas in particular was a character that I, I have been getting a lot of questions in interviews and stuff on the book tour that, you know, did you find it difficult to write a man? Did you find it difficult to write from a male perspective? And the answer was no, because I think, A, regardless of gender, human beings are human beings. And the, the whole publishing industry is filled with books that, uh, are written by men about women or vice versa. I mean, some of my favorite female characters have been written by men, and I don't feel like they're any less realistic or intriguing or enduring in the same way that some of my ma- favorite male characters of all time have been written by women. And it's, it's the same argument. I think they're incredible, and I think they're insightful and interesting. And stay with me long after I finish the chapter of that particular book. With Texas, I was conscious of the fact that there are a lot of bad men in this story, and I wanted to have one that was 
that was good. That's not to say that he always makes good decisions or good choices, but somebody who's conflicted about that, somebody who questions something, somebody who has a real uh, emotional maturity as a man. I feel like we don't have enough of those in pop culture. And Tex was, Tex was really the vessel for that. He's somebody that I enjoyed spending a lot of time with in terms of writing him because, um, because he's an interesting character in terms of the things that he goes through. I'm trying to like carefully navigate around any spoilers for people. But, Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so tricky. You know, I, I really do feel like you need to do a before and after series of interviews where it's like a pre and post spoilers thing. But as we were talking about before off air, uh, you know, books don't have the same sort of, uh, consumption life as movies you know you can kind of safely say that after two weeks everybody has seen a new release movie or whatever as books you're never quite sure who has and hasn't read it so you always kind of tread carefully and not ruin anyone's experience but at the same time hopefully say something that's insightful for people who who want the nitty-gritty absolutely yeah well i i want us to tread uh, in the, our last couple of questions, into into safer territory, because there are there are some <laughs> other things in terms of giving away spoilers, at least. Um, oh man, I want to get into spoilers so bad, but it's always, <laughs> it's always that thing. It's like that's your publicist are like waving at you at the other end, like no spoilers. And you're like, damn it. You wanna you wanna get into that bit where you can really explain. Um, heavy or difficult choices, if that makes sense. As we speak in the silly season, let's assume that everyone is getting The Wailing Woman as a gift and they're, they're probably right. going to be reading it and it, we, we can't do spoilers till maybe late, Jan. Uh- no, that's great. That's great. That's great for my electricity bill. That's great for my like mental health. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> you, you talked about um, the way these books uh, and, and the... the writing that you're doing is very firmly situated in the sort of pop culture milieu and you pepper your your stories with pop culture references which is absolutely fantastic say for me reading the wailing woman um in the streets where the story is set and places that are, are just so recognizable but also music and an art that is recognizable to me but i wondered for you though did you see uh, Amongst the release of being able to make this such a, a here and now and of you story, are there any perils in in pop culture use in terms of crafting a narrative that's, I guess, more universal? Look, I'm going to say no because I think one of the great examples of that is a show like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is peppered with pop culture dialogue and pop culture references and, you know, the Buffy verse or Buffy speak, if you will, mm. depending on what academic term you prefer. And that's a show that endures because the bigger themes are still there and they are something that are forever timely. But the pop culture references as well, it's not as if there's something that's specific from a three to four month period. You know, we're referencing things from the 60s, referencing silent film at one point. There's, you know, references to talkies and mm. silent film and there's, references to rap music, to comic books, to movies, the scope of references abroad because I think sometimes the things that people love or even more so the things that they hate really tell you a lot about that person. You can introduce a character by their song choice or by their band shirt or by the posters on their wall in half a sentence or you can spend paragraphs trying to do that. So sometimes it's a little bit of showing rather than telling. Mm. And I found that a really useful tool, but it's also something that's consistent with my work. I have a voice uh, that people identify with, and when you read my work on a page, 
it's clear that it's mine and that's who I am as a person. And that kind of stuff leads into the work. And I'm somebody who wears their pop culture loves on their sleeves. I mean, it's things aren't just TV shows or books or comic books or whatever to me. They have helped shape who I am as a person. And I love infusing my work with that. And I hear from people a lot who enjoy consuming it because it's the same for them. And I meet those people at book events. I meet them on the pop culture convention circuit. First and foremost, I'm always trying to write something that I enjoy and something that I would want to read and just hope that somebody else gives a game and gives a shit as well. And that has proven to be the case so far. So, I mean, in the case of The Wailing Woman, there are a lot of Australian bands mentioned because it's set in Australia and it's a certain age group of Australians and who's afraid there's a lot of Scottish bands, a lot of Scottish places that are referenced. It depends on the character, it depends on the setting, and it depends on the time period. I mean, Witcher Court of Death, as mentioned, Casper and Opal, they're characters that are in their 30s. It's a different type of age group, and they come from a completely different place, and the things that they're interested in and the things that they consume art-wise are very different from something that, say, a 19-year-old banshee teenager from Australia is going to be into. The only thing I will add, though, is is back in season, back into I'm back into season three, possibly the best season of Buffy, and their internet Ooh, use is their internet <laughs> their internet use is hilarious. Yeah, but that's technology. That's I know, not a I know. A reference per se. I mean, mm. it's like it's like watching you know Casablanca and being like, "Whoa, look at the cars!" You know what I mean? They can't be driving around with subwoofers because they didn't exist. In the same way, their internet use and Buffy can't be what it is today because it just is a thing that didn't exist. You can't foresee and perceive the future. Um, so, I don't know. I think I think there's a difference when it comes to practical usage of things and then referential usage. Mm. I was also really interested in the very prominent role of Sadie's use of Auslan and the, the ways, your depictions of the ways that she interacted with others and her communication. Um, this was, for, I mean, obviously you needed to give Sadie a a way, a means of communicating because she doesn't have a voice. Um, and I loved, I loved this. But I was wondering, though, about what your, your research revealed to you about signing, about the signing community and, and how that might have influenced the way you portrayed communities that sit outside of a mainstream. Yeah, well, that's, I guess, the interesting thing is with my first book, which Who's Afraid, Tommy Grayson's a mixed woman of Polynesian background and that's my own background so it's something that's very personal to me and a lot of people associate with me but you can't tell stories exclusively from your own background forever I mean the witch who caught it death the main character Casper she's a trans radial amputee she's somebody that has a limb difference and I do not live with that but in order to write that it took a, a lot of time a lot of research a lot of consultation with people who not only are in the limb difference community, but people who are activists uh, for representation and pop culture of people accurately who have differences, whether that be many differences or physical differences, mental differences, that kind of thing. So I had some experience in terms of trying to research and accurately portray characters that weren't myself. And I think that is something that had been really important to me was to try and represent women that you didn't feel were represented all the time in pop culture, whether that's a woman of a different race, whether that's a woman who's middle-aged, whether that's a woman who's in her 30s, whether that's a teenager who uses Auslan to communicate. I had the, the benefit of being a journalist for 
for nearly two decades now. So my background is a lot of research and interviewing and dealing with primary sources. And generally speaking, if I don't know something, my first instinct is to contact somebody who does and speak to them about it directly. And in the case of Auslan, I worked at the feed on SBS where we had done a quite extensive documentary about Auslan users in Australia. And for people who don't know what that means, it's essentially a short slang term for Australian sign language because depending on where you are, the sign language is different. There's British sign language, there's American sign language. Sign language is not a universal thing regardless of where you are in the world. It's different depending on what country you're in and you're constantly having to do update courses and top-up courses to stay up to date with all the different terminology. So representing that in written form was very interesting because Auslan is obviously something that you see. It's, it's a visual means of communication. So having to communicate predominantly through that, having their sisters communicate with her through that and having other characters as well, it was, it was a tricky thing of explaining specific uh, symbols and like terminology, but at the same time making sure that it still flowed in terms of communication so that Sadie still lived and breathed as an authentic character who communicated with the world in a way that was extremely normal for her and extremely normal for millions of other people out there. Hmm. I'm speaking with Maria Lewis. Uh, She is the creator of, of what I've decided to call the Maria-verse, uh, including <laughs> including <laughs> the, the Who's Afraid books and the most recent, which is The Wailing Woman. Maria, it is so fantastic to discuss this. And I think we can say five books in that oh, like there's there's got to be more to look forward to. So um, uh, I anticipate that with bated breath. Yeah, yeah. I'm, that's, that's the hope, you know, just keep pumping them out. And there's uh, enough characters now that keep interweaving with each other. There's a glossary at the back of every book, which is something that I wanted to do from the very beginning, but you can't, you want to earn a glossary, essentially. You can't just drop that in there on the first book. It's really got to be something that's earned. Um, And so at the end of each novel, that glossary expands with different characters and different terms and different creatures that we've met throughout the course of the book. So as the audience learns and evolves, the glossary evolves as well. So that's been something that's been really enjoyable. So my hope is that I can just keep telling stories about different types of women through the vessel of different types of monsters and supernatural creatures. It's something that I've really enjoyed doing for the past five years and something that I really enjoyed engaging with people who have, um, who have connected with the books and the characters on different levels. That's it for this great conversation with Maria Lewis. The latest book in Maria's supernatural connected universe is The Wailing Woman, and it's out now through Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at Two SCR's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, just follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Look for at Final Draft 2 ser And if you click subscribe in your podcast app, you will have a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week. There's more great conversations. Until then, happy reading.